Well, we live in a very distracted world. And sometimes that's nice. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a little bit of entertainment here and there. But we're now so inundated with access to media that you can literally hop from one distraction to the next and never really come up for air. Many people embrace such distractions in life, from movie to TVs to internet to social media, because it helps them ignore the hardships of life. And life is hard, suffering is real, and sometimes it's so much easier to just drown your sorrows in, in a good movie. Such distractions may help you in the short term to not feel bad, but like a band-aid, they do nothing for you in the long term. You just need to stop, think, and ask yourself what's causing the bleeding in the first place. In what we would now call the olden days, they had far fewer distractions, and so many times they had nothing better to do than just sit around and and think. That actually served them well because we need to hit pause from time to time on the really fast pace of life and just think. Imagine you're the, the best man or maid of honor at a wedding, but you're late and you're lost. So you're driving frantically, you're speeding, you're running around, you're just trying desperately to find the place. You're sweating, you're anxious, you're fearful, you're so desperate. You think to yourself, I know I'm lost, but I, I can't stop now. I'm already so late, I just can't stop. But if you would, just just stop for a minute. Think about where you are, where you need to go, look at the directions. You can probably get to where you're trying to go much faster. As Christians, I think we can see the value and appreciate the value in this. We are meant to be a thinking people. God didn't leave us here to let life fly by going from one distraction to the next. Rather, we're called to stop and to think and to reflect and let God's truth intercept and impact our life. Thoughts of God, thoughts of Christ, thoughts of salvation, thoughts of the Christian life, they're meant to occupy our mind and slow us down and to really impact how we live. And we can say the same thing about thoughts of the ascension. The ascension. I've been studying the ascension for a couple weeks now, and I've got to say it's, it's probably the one area that rarely gets any of our brain power. Apart from these Sunday morning sermons, when was the last time you ever thought about the ascension of Jesus? You maybe have heard about it, but when have you stopped and thought about its implications and let it change your life? Maybe never? And even as you encounter it when you read the Bible, you maybe read it, read right through, but when do you stop and, and think about it? We're not as much a thinking people as we need to be. But for the past two weeks, I've been trying to help you that, specifically help you with that, specifically when it comes to the ascension. Several weeks ago in Mark's Gospel, we're going through Mark, we encountered this passage where Jesus references the ascension. It's not really the main point of the passage, so we didn't stop and, and talk about it. But also, I didn't want to skip right over it, because the ascension, it is worth stopping and just thinking about. You just think about this. What does this mean? What does this mean for us? And that's what we've been doing. The ascension is an, a very significant event in the life of Christ, and it's surrounded by so many implications that they really should change how you live. Once you stop and think about them, you recognize how big a deal the ascension is. As a Christian, you've probably spent some time thinking about the birth of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return. But like we've said for weeks now, his ascension and his present session at the right hand of the Father, they're like the forgotten works of Christ. But you need to know about them, and you need to know why they are so important, and that's what we've been tackling for a couple weeks now. 
Two weeks ago, we began a little bonus study on the Ascension. And real quick, in case you weren't here, what is the Ascension? Well, it's an event that took place 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, where he led his disciples to the Mount of Olives, and they watched as he physically ascended before them and was received into heaven. Now, I bet you've heard of this before, but again, I doubt you've spent a lot of time thinking about it and what that means for us today. I mean, what, what is the significance of this event? Where is Jesus now? What's he doing now? How does that impact us now? There's a lot to learn here, and, and that's why we set out to uncover over the past couple of weeks 10 reasons why the ascension is significant. So that you may grow in your understanding, appreciation, and pursuit of Jesus. Ten reasons why it's so significant. And the past two weeks, we've covered the first six of those ten reasons. We can't do any recap, but I can just repeat for you now what those six reasons were. And why is the ascension so significant? Well, number one, it marks the end of Christ's humiliation. Number two, it marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly rule. Number three, it marks the end of Christ's earthly ministries. Number four, it marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly ministries. Number five, it marks the sending of the Holy Spirit by Christ to indwell believers. And number six, it marks the giving of spiritual gifts by Christ to equip believers. And those are all actually really significant on their own right. really encourage you, if you haven't been here, to get those two previous sermons to unpack those. We've covered a lot of ground. But for now, we're just going to finish up, pick up where we left off, and and do these last four reasons why the ascension is so much more significant than you realize, than you've probably ever thought about. It really is worth stopping to think about. So that's what we're going to do tonight, or this morning rather, to finish up these last four reasons. Jump in where we left off now with, with reason number seven. So let's pick it up. Why is the ascension so significant? Reason number seven. It marks the entrance of resurrected humanity into heaven. It marks the entrance of resurrected humanity into heaven. And you're probably thinking, what what does that even mean? (laughs) What what is that? What does that mean? Why does that matter? So bear with me. I'll explain it. But first, take your Bible and open it to Hebrews chapter 6. If you you want to follow along, I encourage you to do so. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6 starts with a serious warning given to professing believers against the peril of falling away. In every age, there are countless people in the church who profess to be Christians. They walk the walk, they talk the talk for a little while, but then they fall away. They abandon the faith. They give it up. They go back to their old ways. And the writer of Hebrews has some very strong words of warning against such apostates in the beginning of Hebrews 6. But then down in verse 9, he turns his attention towards the faithful to encourage them to press on, to keep running the race, despite hardship and persecution. The original audience of the book of Hebrews was Jewish Christians, and they were suffering a lot. They were enduring hardship. They were being persecuted for the faith. And that persecution, over time, it really tempts you to just abandon the faith. And we don't live under such persecution yet, but just imagine if your life, your everyday life, was constantly under attack just for being a Christian. There would be this constant pressure just to give up, just just throw in the towel, just stop being a Christian. Why are you still a Christian in a world that hates Christians? What's the point? What are you going after? Just It would be so much easier 
to give up. Just join those in the world. You'd be safe. You'd be secure. But it really comes down to which life you value more, this life or the next. Now, for some, they would say that's an easy choice. You can't even see the next life. You don't even know the next life exists, so just live it up now. But understand, everyone bases their belief on the next life by faith. Everyone. Some people, by faith, believe that there is no next life. There's no judgment. They don't really know that. They can't prove that empirically. But by faith, they believe that and they live accordingly. Others, like us, by faith, believe there is a next life. There is a judgment from a righteous God. But there's also a hope. There's a hope for redemption in Christ. And whether you believe or not, that's your prerogative. But the writer of Hebrews encourages you who believe to hold fast to your hope, to persevere. This hope is so important when it comes to finishing the race, the Christian race. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that nobody runs a marathon for the fun of it. I don't think anyone's done it so far just for the fun of it, because it doesn't seem very fun. seems like most marathon runners have some other goal in mind, something they want to accomplish. For most, it's some sort of personal satisfaction. They just want the satisfaction of knowing they've done something that most people haven't. A few run the race for the actual trophy, There's a few that actually are trying to win the marathon. They're actually trying to win the race. And then some might be running for some philanthropic reason. Maybe they're trying to raise money for some cause. But everyone has some reason for running a marathon, some goal in mind. And that hope drives them. As the race wears on and the pain sets in, that hope drives them. I mean, they're tired, they're hot, they're fatigued, they're exhausted, cramped, blistered. The suffering sets in, so does the thought, you know, why are you doing this? What's the point? You could be at the beach right now. Why are you running the race? Why not just quit? And if you have no hope and no goal in mind, you're going to quit. You will not press through that pain. You will just give up. I don't know this from personal experience. I, I hate running. I have not run a marathon. But I've been told that starting a marathon is physical, but finishing a marathon is mental. And do you have that drive to finish? Do you have that reason to finish? If so, you will. If you don't, you won't. And it's very much the same with the Christian life, which is why the race metaphor is used so much in Scripture. You are called to run a race, to live life following Christ, and to persevere, to press on, to finish the course. But it's hard. The race is hard. It goes on for a long time. There's suffering. There's persecution. There's spiritual fatigue. So why are you doing it? Why keep running? Why not just give up? It'd be so much easier just to give up, to join the world, to just stop pressing on. So why? Why do you keep running? The answer is hope. Hope for eternal life. Hope for redemption, for reconciliation, for being with God. Again, you can't get around faith. Everyone exerts faith. But for those who have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior... He's your hope, and that hope keeps you going. You're you're running after him, the hope of life with him. And that hope keeps you steady on the course. If you're in Hebrews 6, 6, look at verse 19. I love how he puts it here at the beginning. He says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Like an anchor, hope of eternal life in Christ and with Christ 
It keeps us from drifting away. It keeps us from getting lost. It keeps us from falling away. Now keep in mind, like verse 18 says, this hope is something you have to hold on to. You've got to hold fast to that hope. Otherwise, if you let go of your hope in Christ, you will drift away. You will despair. A couple times I've talked about how I you know, like to ocean kayak from time to time, how it gets windy out there. Just imagine you're kayaking on the ocean, you're paddling towards shore, and this really strong wind picks up, and it's blowing you out to sea. And no matter how hard you paddle, you, you can't fight it. Thankfully, though, you've got a little anchor. So your only hope is to drop anchor and just wait for the wind to die down. At least you'll be safe right there. But then you realize you actually have no place to tie the anchor to. Your only option is to hold on to that anchor, that rope, with your own bare hands. And as long as you hold on, you'll be okay. You'll be safe. You'll be steadfast. But if you let go, you're going to drift away. You're going to be blown away. And I think that's another fitting metaphor for the Christian life. Especially when times get tough, you have to hold fast to your hope. That's what will keep you steady during troubled times. But if you lose sight of that hope and you let go of Christ, you will feel lost. You will despair. So don't let go. Hold fast. That's what the author of Hebrews says over and over again. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your hope. Persevere. Don't let go. And if I can take this metaphor just one step further. Okay, on the flip side, how do you know your anchor will hold? Okay, you're holding fast, you're holding tight, but how do you know your anchor will do its job? Or when it comes to the Christian life, what assurance do you have that your hope in Christ, your hope for heaven is even real? Well, one answer is God's word. That's what the author of Hebrews has been proving up to this point. That God himself, he's promised. He himself has sworn by an oath. He has staked his own name on his promise that those who have faith in Christ will be saved. He will bring them into his rest. Like verse 18 says, God can't lie. It is impossible for God to lie. So he has promised to bring those who have faith to him. And you can count on that. By his word, you can be assured that your hope is steadfast. There's a second reason, though, that you can be confident in your hope of eternal life in heaven with God. And the second reason is the ascension. So here's the tie-in. You can see where I'm going now. Here's the tie-in to the ascension. Look again at verse 19 in Hebrews 6. He says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we actually already studied this business about Jesus being high priest before. That was two sermons ago. Here, though, I just want to highlight Jesus being our forerunner. It's not that complicated. I mean, you look at the race, the Christian life. You look at this race and you think it's, it's impossible. No one can run this race. No one can finish the race. And, and who's to say what's really at the finish line anyway? But look to Christ. Because he's already run the race before you. And he has finished the course and he has gone to heaven. It is possible and the hope of humanity entering into God's presence in heaven has been realized. 
This here in verse 19:20, it is a reference to the ascension of Jesus. And here's a really significant point. When Jesus ascended and went back to the Father, he did not shed his humanity. He didn't dump his human nature as he went back to heaven. He kept it. He retained his humanity. And thereby, that embodies our hope. Because our hope is that we humans can be back in God's presence. We can be restored after the fall. To be with God. But how is it possible? It's not for us. But Christ leads the way. And as he ascended in a a still a God-man form with his human nature, he goes before us as a forerunner. He shows it is possible. Humankind can be accepted back into God's presence. And Jesus proved this during the ascension. You see that note in verse 19, he entered within the veil. And what's that all about? What does he mean by that? Well, you may remember in the Old Testament, inside the temple, there was this special room inside the temple called the Holy of Holies. That's the room where God caused his special presence to dwell. That's where you could say God was, so to speak. He placed his name there, his presence there. But nobody could go in that room. Nobody. The room was separated by a veil. Not even the priests could enter that room. You were separate. Why? Well, because God is holy and we are not. Unholy, defiled creatures do not belong in the presence of the infinite majesty of God. So nobody can go in the veil. You are separate. You are cut off. And so the veil represented God's separation from sinful mankind. And in the same way, you can picture heaven being separated by a veil. You can't go into God's special presence. That's where God really dwells in, in heaven. You can't go there. There's a veil. You are, you are not holy enough to enter that veil. God is infinitely holy. We are not. We are separated because of our sin and our guilt. We can't go in the veil. But that's why Jesus came. He died to pay for our sin and our guilt, to wipe it away, to make us righteous, to make us holy. And by that, we can enter the veil. We don't have to be separated from God. Jesus died, and that's why the moment he died, do you remember what happened? At the exact moment of his death on the cross, the veil and the temple tore in two. And why did that happen? That was God, and it tore from top to bottom, by the way, so no human did it. But that that happened, God was signifying that the way to God is now open to anyone. How? Through that death, that death of Jesus on the cross. Through Christ's death, the way to God has been opened. You don't have to be separated from God any longer. And before, you had to be separated. You're not holy. But through that redeeming death, by your faith in Him, you can be reconciled. Jesus accomplished this for us, and then He verified the hope we have, that hope of reconciliation, at the ascension. Because still with His human nature, He passed through that heavenly veil. He went in with God's special presence, so to speak, showing that humanity can be accepted before God in Christ, through Christ. So if you catch where I'm going with this, the basic point is that the ascension, what happened at the ascension, it's actually now one of the main foundations for our hope, for our perseverance. He's our forerunner. He went where we want to go at the ascension. He proves that if we follow him, that's where we will go.
This is precisely the, the point he makes in Hebrews 12. If you want, you can just turn a few pages to Hebrews chapter 12. You know this verse, but think about it now and listen to the tie-in in this verse to the ascension. Hebrews 12, the famous verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. His death, his resurrection, here his ascension sitting down at the right hand. That's now our hope. We are running the race, fixing our eyes on him. Not on the cross, but in heaven ascended the risen, glorified Savior. He's waiting for you. He's waiting to bring you there as you finish your course. And if you get this, if, if, this, if this makes sense to you, you understand, this really gives you all the encouragement you need to press on, to persevere. Despite the hardships, I'm going to keep following Jesus because he has gone where I want to go. He has gone before me. And if you keep following, you will meet him there. And that's our hope, that he has gone before us. He's crossed the line. And so can you, if you follow him. So persevere. Ascension marks the, the entrance of resurrected humanity into heaven. And that's, that's our hope, that when we die, the Lord raises us as well, and we go too. Well, along these lines, reason number eight, the ascension marks the preparation of our future home. You see how that's related. The ascension marks the preparation of our future home. And that's significant. This is going to take us back to John chapter 14. So if you're still following along, you can turn back to John chapter 14, a passage we saw last week. This is Jesus on the night before his death with his disciples in the upper room. He's giving them some last minute instruction. He's about to die. He's about to leave them and they're discouraged, they're depressed, they're distraught. It's not the most happy-go-lucky news he leaves them with that he's going to go and they can't follow. And so in these last chapters before he dies, he's comforting his disciples. And one way he comforts them is by telling them of his replacement helper. There's going to be another helper, the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. He'll comfort you. There's the second way Jesus comforts them in this time, this final hour. And that is by assuring them that although he goes, he goes to prepare a place for them. And one day they will join him. They will be with him. John 14, verses 1 through 3. He said to them, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now at this moment, the disciples are troubled, they're anxious, they're confused, because Jesus, he's going to leave them and they can't follow. But here he comforts them with the news that he goes 
for their sake to prepare a place for them. He's not abandoning them, but he's going before them. And they one day will join him. The metaphor this time is of a house, the Father's house. It's a large house. There are many rooms or dwelling places. Jesus goes there to prepare a place for us in this house. Now, in the old King James Version of the Bible, the word for dwelling places was translated as mansions. So this is where people got the idea that we all have our own mansion in heaven waiting for us. You've got a heavenly mansion, which is not the case. But that's where it comes from. I always want to make sure that you have a a balanced biblical view of heaven based on what Scripture actually reveals. And I caution people against a hyper-spiritual view of heaven where we're just sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, fixed in contemplative thought. It's not heaven according to the Bible. I also caution you against a hyper-carnal view of heaven where we're all living in a mega mansion, playing golf all day, lounging by the pool, and fulfilling whatever wish you might have. That's also not what heaven is like. This room, or rather this word, simply means room or dwelling place. And all that Jesus is saying is he's going to prepare some place for you in the Father's house, which is heaven. That's still good news. After the ascension, where does Jesus dwell? Where God dwells, in heaven, and he's going to prepare some place for you there. What's that place going to be like? What is heaven like? We only know so much. The Bible only reveals so much. But you can be sure it will be glorious because Christ, the master builder, is preparing it for you, so to speak. But the bottom line here is that Christ's ascension gives us assurance that our final home will be with him. Where? Where he went in heaven with God, with God's special presence. There you will be also. And that's meant to comfort you, to encourage you. But it's only comforting if you, like verse 1 says, believe in me, as Jesus said. You have to believe. It's only a comfort for those who believe because you only get entrance into the Father's house through faith in Christ. He continues in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He said, And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The only way into the Father's heavenly home is through Jesus now. That's the only way you get through the veil is through him. You must follow him by faith. For those of us who have this faith, though, now these thoughts of our future home, of our, of our heaven awaiting, it, they're presented as legitimate motivators for the Christian life. You realize we don't belong here. We are strangers. We are exiles on earth. This is not our home. Yet we may be citizens of America, but we have a second citizenship, a higher citizenship in heaven. And so while we pilgrimage through this life, this should only turn our thoughts heavenward. And like we've been talking about before, these heavenward thoughts, they really drive us forward. They, they make us press on to keep running the race. I mean, don't stop your race because you're distracted by things of this world. This isn't our home. Don't settle here. Don't put down your roots on this earth. Don't live for this life. We live for the next. We press on towards the next. We're awaiting a greater home. To the world, it's crazy, we know. But for those of faith in Christ, that 
legitimately motivates you to press on, to endure, and not get caught up in this world. And in addition, it has a purifying effect. That hope of heaven, of your life with Him, in and with Christ, should purify you. Because you realize, if I'm actually a heavenly citizen, I should probably start living like a heavenly citizen right now. That's exactly what Colossians 3 says. I'll read it for you. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5. Where Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's another ascension reference. He says, verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. I mean, that future hope is meant to be a guide in life, even to purity and to to right living in a world gone wrong. Focusing on our future home with the Lord should be all the more important to you in these days. And as you're aware, our own nation is turning more and more against the way of the Lord. There's a silver lining there because as our culture turns against Christians, it just makes it easier for us to recognize this isn't our home. This is not our land. We we don't belong here. We're strangers. We're exiles on earth. But that turns us heavenward turns our thoughts back to God, which is what he wants, and to Christ, who is waiting for us to join him, or who just might return for us. This brings us to reason number nine. Why is the ascension significant? Next, number nine, it marks the way in which Christ will return. It marks the way in which Christ will return. You know, back in John 14, Jesus alluded to this fact. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And the fact of Christ returning in the same way he left is confirmed in in the ascension passage. Acts chapter 1, Jesus takes him to the Mount of Olives. He ascends before them. They're just staring into heaven as he just floats up and he's brought into the, the glory cloud of God and they just vanish. And then standing beside them are two men. Remember that? Acts 1.10 says, And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. These were angels. Verse 11 says, They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And what does it mean to say Jesus will return in the same way as he went into heaven? Well, how did he ascend? Visibly, bodily, in glory, and into the cloud. And he returns in the same way. You see this predicted in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Christ, his first and second coming, affirms this. Prophet Zechariah, he pictures all the nations gathered against Israel in a final battle to destroy Israel, but then God himself comes to deliver them, Yahweh himself. 
And Yahweh, as a side note, he's pictured in human terminology in that chapter, Zechariah 14, which now makes sense to us because we know about the incarnation. But the second coming of the Messiah, God himself, is foreseen. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, I'll read it for you. It says, after that, during that final battle, it says, In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. More stuff happens, but Christ will return in glory, literally to the same spot from which he departed on the Mount of Olives. His, his touchdown spot is right where he left, Mount of Olives, at that final moment. The Lord will come, the sky will be darkened, he will deliver his people, and he will usher in his kingdom. Verse 9 of Zechariah 14 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, his name the only one. And there are a plethora of Old Testament passages which say the same thing and, and just round that out. Jesus himself in the New Testament, he, he pointed forward to that same prediction. He affirmed how he's going to return. Jesus, speaking in Matthew 24, verse 29, he said, But immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So in short, we see the ascension really does foreshadow the return. He left in power and glory. He's going to return in power and glory, visibly, bodily. The ascension anticipates the return. You could say, what goes up must come down, and he will return in glory and power with all authority. Briefly, we can mention why does Jesus return? In short, to rescue his followers and to judge his enemies. Jesus possesses all dominion over the earth right now. That dominion is possessed, but not expressed. Right now, the nations still rebel against God. The wicked prosper, evil reigns, God is mocked, but not forever. Christ will return to set all things right and to deliver those who have been made righteous by his blood, but to those who reject and mock to judge. Let me read for you 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, a sobering, straightforward passage. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. I mean, you study that. That's a harsh and sobering passage. Right now, Jesus is ascended at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies are made a footstool at his feet, as our original passage in Mark 12 said. 
In other words, he remains in heaven after the ascension until the time of that dominion is at hand. Right now, there's a chance to repent, to believe, to be saved. But he will come and he will deal out retribution to those who hate God, who mock, who reject. He will rescue the righteous and judge the godless. And for those who presently reject God and live in that rebellion, these are serious words of warning. It's not too late. Repent, believe. You can be saved. But when he comes, like Revelation 19.15, beware, for he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. But for those of us who by faith believe in him, we have been delivered from that judgment through Christ's own atonement. He died to pay that wrath for us. That's why we're called saved. And what are we saved from? From that judgment, from that righteous wrath. We are delivered because Christ bore it for us. He paid that penalty for us. And so when he returns for us, it's only to rescue. And that rescue factors into our future hope. We've talked a lot this morning about our heavenly hope. From Jesus entering heaven with his humanity intact to Jesus preparing a place for us there. All that's left is for him to return, but let that also be part of your future hope. Especially now as you see the world getting darker, as you see immorality becoming law, as you see wickedness on the rise, realize our hope is not in government. Humans cannot fix the problems of the world. Humans are the problem of the world. There's no hope in people or power or presidents. There's only hope in Christ and in his return because then he will set all things right. He will usher in his kingdom where God is finally honored, honored, where righteousness dwells, where the ungodly are removed. So make that your hope now, especially as we see the dawn of darker days. Let that really be your hope, which again drives you forward and keeps you going to press on and to persevere. Well, let's finish this up now. We'll finish this study with reason number 10. And 10 reasons why the ascension is so significant and all of its implications. And here's the last one. Number 10, it marks the period when Jesus ministers to the world through the church. Let's say that again. It marks the period when Jesus ministers to the world through the church. Our thoughts this morning have turned mostly heavenward. And that's a good thing. But... We're still living on earth, and we still have work to do. And Jesus did not leave his disciples behind so that they could stand around and stare into the clouds all day, waiting for him to return. I mean, literally, remember what the angel said to them in Acts 1.11. Like, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You know, as exciting and encouraging and reassuring and comforting it. It's all this truth on heaven is. It's not meant to take us out of the race. It's actually meant to make us run harder. Though we don't belong on earth, God has still given us important work to do here on earth. And so, yeah, we'll keep one eye towards the sky. We want that heavenward focus in our minds, of course. But still, we've got work to do. Because in this age, Jesus purposes to minister to the world through us, through his church. And if Jesus wanted, he could have stuck around, even after the resurrection. 
kept traveling the world, you know, gone to China, the Americas. He could have made more disciples. He could have ushered people directly into the kingdom. But he didn't. He left. And during his time, he only made a small impact. Twelve disciples. In general, there's about 500 people who witnessed the resurrection. It's not that many people. But as he left, he entrusted his work to them. So he actually effectively multiplied himself through those disciples because he commissioned them to work. Do you remember some of, his, some of his final words to his disciples before he left? This great commission right before the ascension. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know that passage, it's the Great Commission, right after the resurrection, before the ascension. He's telling them that after he leaves, he doesn't want them just sitting around looking at the clouds. He wants them working primarily to make disciples. And notice in Matthew 28, he first tells them that he's got all authority. All authority has been given to him after the resurrection and after the ascension. God the Father gives the Son all authority over creation as the Redeemer in a special way. And so he says, therefore, in verse 19, on the basis of that authority, he commissions you. He has the right to do it, and you should probably listen. He is using you to build his church. Now, you may recall back in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's true. Ultimately, the work of building the church, the work of saving souls, the work of making disciples through the new birth, that's his work. It requires his power, his authority, his spirit. Jesus is the head ministering in heaven, building his church. However, the primary way Jesus has chosen to build his church is through the church, through us. In other words, he is also ordained to use human means to accomplish his divine purposes. I mean, if God wanted, he could save people just by zapping everybody with no human involvement whatsoever. And sometimes he does. I had a friend who was saved, just picked up a Bible and started reading it and came to true salvation. And God does that. But for the most part, God uses some other human being sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, sharing scripture to draw people to saving faith. It's still his work, his power, his salvation, but he calls us to be the instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Jesus primarily builds his church through our work. And that's the primary work he left us behind to do. And realize there's no evangelism in heaven. It's one work you can't do in heaven. You can only do now. That's the main reason he left his disciples behind, to do this work of making disciples. And that extends even today to you who are his disciples. You have been commissioned by the ascended Lord who has all authority to make disciples. None of you, if you follow Christ, are exempt. Yeah, you may not be a missionary, but you're not exempt. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. He gets the glory for he supplies the power. But you are called to get to work and to share. So, are you doing that? Have you realized your commission by the ascended Lord to make disciples? 
disciples. Yeah, if possible, go to the nations. But look, what about your own neighbors? What about your own backyard? Who do you know that needs to hear the good news of Christ? And have you told them? And if not, why not? You've been commissioned. You have to take seriously this call to make disciples. That's why he's left us behind for now. If you know Christ, you've been saved and left on earth for this purpose, so get to work. He's already supplied you with all the power you need. Say that last time. You just need to function as the instrument in the Redeemer's hands. If you're scared, don't worry. His very last words in Matthew 28, he said, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with you and us, no matter what, to the end of the age. Yes, we wait for him. Yes, we anticipate his return. And yes, we set our minds on the things above. But also be encouraged that even though he's ascended, he's still with you. You've been united to Christ. You have his spirit. He's still with you. Let that encourage you and drive you on. He's made his presence known among the church through his spirit. So let that encourage you to keep running, to get busy with the work which he left us to do, and to persevere. He's with you to the end of the age. Well, these truths we've learned this morning all tied to the ascension. I hope have been encouraging to you that they're designed by God to be an encouragement to the saints of our heavenly Lord. These ten reasons why the ascension is so significant really should impact our lives. The ascended Lord, he has equipped you. He intercedes for you. He's given you a spirit and he's still with you. And one day you will be with him. Let all these truths come together to inform you, make you stop and think, and then to empower you to keep running the race, to persevere, to press on, and finish the course. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this little study, this little detour on the ascension. It's true, how, how often do we study this? Maybe never, but it's so worthwhile pausing and thinking about. As are all of your truths, we could derive so much from, from your word because it's so deep and rich. We thank you, Christ, for your, your saving death, how you paid that price for us, dying on the cross to bear the wrath of God that we might be spared from that judgment. Our faith is in you, and we look to you now, our risen and ascended Lord in heaven, equipping us, supplying us with power through the Spirit, even waiting for us. And we likewise wait for your return. We long for your return to make things right. This world is growing darker. We know that must happen. We know it must get dark, quite dark, before the light comes. Help us to endure the darkness by clinging to you in that heavenly hope. And we just pray for your return, that you come quickly and make all things right. We long for for that kingdom and our home with you. In the meantime, though, keep us going with the work you've given us to do, getting serious about making disciples. That's the only way this nation will change, or any country, by the work of, of conversion, of making disciples, changing hearts. It's your work, but you've called us to participate. So may we take that seriously as we leave here as well, remembering all that you've left us behind to do. But we're comforted because you are with us. You are with us now and, and to the end of the age. And we will be with you forever. And let that hope guide us and drive us home. We thank you, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.